Welcome to the Cory Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Cory Mila podcast. With me today is Vina O'Sullivan. Vina has worked for the international relief and development charity Tear Fund since the year 2000 and has particular focuses on HIV, peace building and violence against women and girls. In 2021, Vina became the international director of Tear Fund UK. Vina, welcome to the Carmilla podcast. Thanks, Boric. Lovely to be here. Um, Vina, I'd like to start off with asking a question that mostly I ask uh, everybody that we have on the podcast. Do you think that there was any experience in childhood that prepares you for some of the work you do now? <laughs> well, growing up where I grew up in India, I suppose looking back, you think, ah, oh, maybe that, maybe this. Well, can I just say I was a bit of a wild child um, <laughs> and my wonderful parents, I think that mom didn't have an option, but dad was so free in his mind that he, you know, growing up in India in those days, um, talking about my age now, but he was one who always said, don't worry about marriage, just just stand on your own feet, you can do anything. So I grew up with a free mind, I suppose, yeah. that comes with risks and <laughs> a lot of liberation. And it would be another interview, Vina, to have the wild child interview with Vina O'Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that in the next season. Let's. Um, you studied um, economics and sociology. What led you to choose those? Oh, geez. Can I just confess? I, I didn't really think about what I was going to study. I, I wanted to just be d doing design. Okay. And at that time in India, you know, I was, I think, the second person in the entire big Indian family who did not want to do science or uh, commerce. So here I was getting counsel because I wanted to do arts. Um, Really, it was a reaction to not wanting to get into IT, mm. not wanting to be an engineer or a chartered accountant. <sighs> it's as uh, boring as that. Interesting. Um, I'm from a family where there's um, scientists and engineers too, and myself and my sister, who haven't done either of those, are referred to as the humanities department. <laughs> <laughs> I was referred to as the one that they'd have to rescue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're based in Ireland now, Vina. although I know you um, travel widely um, and you moved to the UK for a long time. You know, what was it that um, took you out of India? Was it initially for international development work or did you leave? Did you leave before you went into that career? No, actually, neither. Um, I met this amazing man called Gavin, who was from Cork who had been living and working with the most marginalized in Asia and India, actually, when I met him, he was working with people with HIV. And I thought he was crazy living in my country and coping with the madness there. And I, I remember saying to him, it's like, how, why, how? And he said, oh, India's just like Ireland. <laughs> I thought he was insane. I know our flags are kind of similar and all of that, but you know, well, that's to cut the long story short, Gavin and I thought, hey, let's go to London. Let's be there for a year. A year became two and became 12. Mm. Um, life changed forever. Yeah. yeah. And do you still think he's crazy? 
he he it's insane <laughs> but but he's one of those who appears so sane and you know and looks so in calm and unfazed and but he's actually the crazy one looks that <laughs> deceptive so I, I'd really like to talk about your career in Tear Fund. I suppose broadly, first of all, like even bigger than the organisation, I'm interested in um, relief and development and then faith-based relief and development. I, I'm curious mm-hmm. about how it is you'd say to somebody who might know what those things are or who's somebody who thinks they know, like how would you describe what those things are? Relief and development, first of all, and then faith-based relief and development. Well, I think, you know, we living in a world where there's so much need in so so much of the world lives without anything or very little so i think there is this incredible force in our humanity that really imagines that it can do good and i've joined that group and really think that oh my i if we could change something with so that they experience the freedom I have, so that they experience even basic food that I have. It's like a dream and it's it's a dream and a drug because you imagine that and you really want to make it happen with them. So relief and development, We, I mean, that those were the old words, but nowadays it's just about seeing people really build a different kind of life for themselves where they have power to do that in the way they want to do it. And people like us come alongside and try and make it happen with them. That's what I do. Yeah. And so relief and development are the old words. What, what, how is it kind of formally described now? Is it international development or are there other terms? Yeah. Yeah. Even that, you know, language is so, I mean, you know, language is so powerful and can be so toxic and emotive and wonderful. So uh, I don't even use the word development because it infers that some people are developed and some are not. Yeah. So I just work in a sector that uh, part of this community that tries to do good with <sighs> those who want things to change. Mm. Well, I can hear the word with there very as a very powerful word by, by speaking about with coming alongside. That seems to be a marker of your work in the the times that I've encountered your work before. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I'm changed because, you know, I am because of the other. I I did not grow up poor. I did not grow up wanting. It is because of the other that I even realized what the world is like for majority people. What an extraordinary experience and opportunity to be changed, to be able to see finally, and not, I still don't think I see it all, but to see a lot that I never saw before, definitely with. When did you begin to work for Tear Fund? And maybe you could say a little bit about Tear Fund. (laughs) Tear Fund, the organization I knew nothing about (laughs) when I came to London and was stuck at home because my passport was stuck at immigration (laughs) with home, home office and just very frustrated. I left India um, 
having worked with people with HIV and this is going back now late 90s and you know at that time it was a phenomenal movement that was charged charge uh, this is before ARVs became a reality and all of that antiretroviral drugs yeah. yes antiretroviral drugs there was no treatment there was massive discrimination fear angst hatred and having been with people like that for about uh, nearly four years um, and then to come to London and be stuck at home because I did not have permission to work. Gavin was in London. We got married there and mm -hmm. then I found myself stuck at home. Um, and then I joined. I, w I was desperate because you, you can't go from that kind of intensity to zero. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, a wonderful human being called Stuart, um, got me into the London Lighthouse, which was a charity that worked with people with HIV. And I started volunteering there. Um, after the study of sociology and economics, that was uh, had nothing to do with choice for me. I actually went on to study design. And so, you know, life is amazing, isn't it? You don't even plan this. And then at the London Lighthouse, I, I was working with uh, predominantly uh, gay men, wonderful people, uh, doing art therapy. So helping them imagine, draw as a way of releasing emotion. Mm. So that's kind of how I started in London. And Tear Fund was literally an advert in, in, a, in The Guardian, I think, talking about, because I was so homesick, and it was an advert saying, looking for someone uh, to lead our work in South Asia. It was literally that much. And then getting all the material about Tier Fund and discovering it was a faith charity. And sometimes incredible, weird, wonderful things happen. And I found some words there that were words that someone had said to me just before I left home. You felt a connection. Yeah. Felt a connection, felt I didn't have a choice, but also I was desperate to be back home yeah. <laughs> involved in stuff. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, like, so words like charity are, are rightly complicated these days and you've already been yeah. complicating, you know, words like relief and development and, and that um, because in the midst of people wanting to do good, there is a question as to how much good is achieved by people who want to do good. You know, is the good helping? Yeah. Is the help helping? How, yeah. how do you bring yourself to that now? And I'm curious as to whether your study of sociology and economics influenced that too, you know, rather than just thinking about the individual experience of charity, to think about the broader um, economic or systemic or sociological mm -hmm. features. Well, understanding economics was helpful, definitely. I think, but the experience of people, and for me, the biggest thing was shifting power, giving away power, because I knew I was powerful just because I had language and education and resources and people and all of that. But learning to give that away. Um, and that's what I learned with uh, people with HIV at that time, where they would lead, they would be the, my teachers, they would tell me what I could or couldn't do what this word meant or didn't mean. That is an extraordinary experience because you realize when you when you are powerless, but you're led by the most vulnerable, because I, I feel like that's the most beautiful. 
because when you experience so much, there is a refinement that I don't have naturally. Yeah. And within the context of like a faith-based charity or a faith-based organization working alongside and with people who are living with HIV, um, obviously there's a lot of landmines in the context of that in terms of faith's mm -hmm. public voice about the LGBTQ community and um, mm -hmm. HIV. Would you be able to talk about the, the fine line that you've been trying to hold and ways within which you've done that or, or learnt or things you've changed about the way you go about that work? There are line, landmines everywhere, Porik. I mean, at that time, yeah, definitely landmines. You, I mean, you experience more closed doors uh, in the faith community, but also outside. But my goodness, how many closed doors and how many landmines in the world today where everything is contested. I think the, you know, the freedom that I mentioned that I experienced, that I ha had the blessing of growing up with thanks to my family and then uh that freedom that got charged into a into a bigger sense of liberation because of my faith journey i think that really sheltered me because i i really did not care or worry i only cared or worried about was i holding holding uh, myself to account. Was I doing the right thing? Was I doing the best thing by the people who I seek to do it for and with? And I never, there was a strange kind of fearlessness that I've lived with for a long time. And that fearlessness meant, ah, if it's not tearful, then I'm meant to be doing this somewhere else. So, so be it. Mm. That's uh, that's quite an extraordinary sense of liberation to live with. You're listening to the Coromila podcast and I'm Padrigo Tuma. With me today is the International Director of Tear Fund UK, Vina O'Sullivan. I wonder briefly, would you be able to sketch the the kind of distinctions that can come with, you know, working alongside and then engagement in disaster and war relief and, you know, those big sectors uh, that can mm -hmm. happen within the context of the work that you do? Just so mm -hmm. for people who would hear them and go, I'm familiar with the language, but they may not be, they may not have had the opportunity to think through what the, the distinctions are. Yeah, I mean, there are many ways to look at it, I think. What we see, if we just bring it to where we are to today, what we see is an extraordinary amount of war, conflict, breakdown of freedoms politically, a domination of the minority economically over the majority who are without climate chaos which leads has led and is leading to so much so much deprivation pain upon pain and those lines are very very blurred today because you know you 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 think oh these are the 50 poorest countries and then you have ukraine mm. syria you just it just has shattered all of those divisions and definitions because what we have going on for all kinds of reasons is few of the powerful who don't have good in, in their intentions, not really bothered about majority of the powerless who are losing out more and more. 
And when you say not really bothered, what, what do you think the solution to that is? Is it for, you know, um, international agencies and international coalitions to come in? Uh, do you hope that those who aren't bothered will become bothered? Like, how how do you go about imagining change? Or are there kind of 20 different things and you, you try them all or try them in an order? You do, you do try them all. But, you know, <laughs> fundamentally for me, what I believe, again, the experience of people with HIV, my goodness, we have treatment because of them. We have rights because of them. So I really believe in the power of good, of the movement of people who, when they know they can stand up, when they lose fear and they stand up, change will come. So it's about giving platforms and opportunities. We're not even giving, but co-sharing or co-making platforms and opportunities. Yeah, co-imagining, co-imagining, co-dreaming. You know, when we started the peace building work, I chose the Middle East. The Iraq crisis had started and people thought, you're crazy. Why are you going to the Middle East where it's the toughest? And But I thought, imagine if people here can reimagine what peace means and feels like job done because once you taste and once you taste of that once you begin to see even in the midst of what they went through gosh you can't stop that you can't unsee they can't unsee they can't unfeel yeah i'd like to there's so many different different directions that i'd like to go in the conversation I, in a while i'd like to come back to ukraine you mentioned ukraine earlier on but first of all, I, I, I'm curious about what for you you see as the overlap between the work of Tear Fund and other organizations like it and questions to do with conflict resolution and peace building. What's the overlap? Are, are they sometimes um, seen as distinct fields or do you see them being deeply involved? And then, of course, you also mentioned um, climate crisis. So like mm-hmm. climate crisis, peace building, um, war, and then, you know, uh, famine and hunger. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. are, are they all separate or how do you go about looking at those systemically? They, be- they become more and more interdependent. Uh, I was in Beirut when um, the Ukraine war started and the third day of the war, there were queues, long queues outside the petrol stations. And the price, the currency exchange skyrocketed in a bad way. And there were there was crisis around the bread, you know, that they love in this part of the world. The world is so interconnected, I think. Um, we cannot separate them. Distance has become negligible today across the world. What one experiences, the other feels very intensely deeply in ways that you don't even imagine. I remember also going home from Beirut then to Ireland and the panic that one sensed in the media and around you, will the war come to us? Uh, And there was this thing about the Russian ambassador being called to task and everything. The world has shrunk. I love that because you cannot stay far away and protect yourself in a way that we could before. At the same time, it gives open spaces to come together as well. And like with all those overlapping features of, you know, war and uh, climate crisis and economics, how in your role do you go about thinking, here's what an intervention can be? 
I guess you really have to keep the main thing, the main thing, uh, and just a sense of, you know, what is it that you can do? You have to fix your eyes on that. I think for me, uh, you know, I'm really bothered about change that I may not even see in my lifetime. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very close to River Jordan here, you know, sitting in Amman, and we know there's um, Mount Nebo, there's a, you know, place here where, according to the biblical scripture and story, you know, Moses went up that mountain and was shown the promised land, and you can see the promised land, but Moses never entered, and he was the leader of the people at that time. Um, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, I really feel I want, I've got my eyes fixed on the long haul, um, and I know, you know, short-term stuff is not you know, I, I may never be able to achieve that, but I want to work for for people to really experience the fullness of how life the way I imagine it was meant to be. Would you say that therefore is the promised land that you hope for through all this work? Is that to work alongside people for life as it's meant to be? Totally, Boric. I mean, sometimes, especially I remember coming back from Bangui when there was a horrific a war going on in the Central African Republic, and I was there when it was um, it was it was terrible, really. And I was sitting with all these women because rape and killing was endemic, and you know all these women had run to uh, a church. You know they ran either to churches or mosques because they expected to be protected, and they were there and these women were just pouring out their experiences. It was so hard to hear. And we were documenting the stories to come and tell the world. And I came back and I, just to (laughs) enable others to experience a little bit of it, I got our board members to read a little bit of the testimonies and they couldn't after a while because it was too tough and too emotive and say, how do you do this? And I said, I think I've learned, I've learned, I think that this is true. I think I'm able to do it and able to um, really be hopeful and uh, live in with joy in the midst of all of this, just because those people do. Uh, and I was telling someone else this just a couple of days ago, um, this uh, incredible woman called Patricia Sawo, a woman living with HIV and I remember standing with her in Nigeria and she hadn't disclosed her status to these uh, church leaders who were there and not just church leaders, all the faith leaders, and they were talking sin and damnation, right? And I was angry. I had to leave the room. I was crying. I was, And then she came out with this beaming smile. She's beautiful anyway. And she comes out looking like, <laughs> looking like untouched and actually looking so full of love and said, oh, oh, I can't bear it. And she said, it's okay. They don't know. <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was the most humbling uh, experience made me feel very small. But I thought if Patricia can smile, how can I not? If Patricia has grace, how can I not have? I learned the hard way. Yeah. 
like one of the things that's going on in some of these anecdotes that you're telling us, Vina, is that um, there's questions to do with the experience of women and girls and gender based violence and the power of masculinities. I wonder if you'd be able to bring us into some of those conversations because you've been really um, leading that work through Tear Fund, bringing a gender based focus into mm. your work as an international organization. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, no country. No country is uh, free from this, um, wherever you go, isn't it? I mean, if we think fundamentally, is it, you know, power, the intersectionality of power and, you know, um, with that wealth, <laughs> and I don't just mean financial wealth, I think it just bodes for all kinds of things. But it is really, as a woman, as someone who was even growing up in India, which has probably got one of the worst records, right, uh, with gender-based violence, it is just shocking. But ha having grown up in even in a country like that and having experienced freedom somehow because of my family, my father especially, I suppose it, I was meant to do this. I suppose as a woman who who can, you know, speaking with some of the uh, women and friends in the United States, I remember, um, I won't go into the names and details, but I was shocked by their experiences. And I come from India. I just think toxic masculinity. There's a wonderful side to masculinity. Parik, may I say that you, you're part of that side, but there is a toxic masculinity that people don't even recognize. Do you think that I mean, uh, on a broad level, even psychologically stepping back, one of the things that you're talking about is change, like, you know, change in terms of how people imagine their gender and, and power and uh, yeah. reciprocality. What do you know about the uh, the embrace of change or the resistance to change in terms of the work that you do over these decades? Yeah, there's both, right? <laughs> <laughs> people, you know, the most incredible thing when you've when people like me have had so much and oh my goodness, what a privilege to be able to travel and to commune and be community with all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Um, I'm blessed because I can see, I can tell the story of the group of people here in the Rohingya camp too. And recently, you know, I was talking about them to the people from Myanmar who had fled the violence in that country. I think change is everyone wants good you know one of the and uh, i i don't think i'm being biased as a woman when i say this but women want to do everything to see lives change for their children i think if we think the world you know time is almost irrelevant in this world and but we want to have a world that is so safe so secure so good so full of food so full of you know, peace for our children. I think um, we have a tremendous role to play and women will be the first ones to say yes. So I would say that's where I've always started. Of course, there are some incredible men who will come along, but women will always put their children first. So I think in terms of, you know, resistance change comes from those who have who sense they have too much to lose because they hold too much. 
that's where the resistance sits. I can, um, I, I, I'd like to go back to faith within the context of this then as well. Do you think a relationship with a scripture, whatever the scripture is, do you think that opens people towards being um, helpful in the world? Or do you think it can sometimes close? I suppose the answer is depends really. Both. But um, yeah. uh, does that lead you to optimism or lead you to despair when it comes to the question of working deeply and on an engaged level with faith communities and as a person of faith yourself? There are so many things that, like you say, it can close or it can open spaces up. For me, I I, I trust on, you know, what the world may say, instinct, but uh, my intuition, my sense of, you know, okay, there's, I, there's something here that's more powerful than me to enter into a space. And then when you study scripture, any any uh, religion really, because that means so much, especially to faith communities and faith leaders. Um, you have to engage with scripture, but I'm not. I'm no theologian in, in, because I'm of Christian faith. I say that I'm no theologian. But where scripture becomes so lived is when you read about it in context. When you replace the names in in the Bible, in my context, with names of the people uh, in that village, hmm. suddenly it changes. Huh. That is very powerful. My name is Padraigo Tuma, and this is the Miller Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Vina O'Sullivan. Vina, I'd like to ask you a question about um, money. Because I know that, you know, you wrote that after what was what's been happening in Ukraine in the last number of years, um, that there was this massive outpouring of extraordinary generosity. And mm. when that happens, do you find that other crises that are have been trying to raise money? Do you think can there be internal resentment in the in the kind of the communities of people who are trying to raise awareness, can there be um, jostling and resentments and competition and a sense mm. that, well, here's the ones that are in the public eye, here's the ones that aren't. From the point of view of a professional working in that field, what do you notice about that and how do you hold it together? See, I fundamentally believe, right, that we have enough wealth and enough resource to feed everyone. Yeah. For everyone to have a home, for every girl to go to school, etc. So the, we have enough and more actually in this world. It's just that it's uh, disproportionately allocated. Yeah. That's the problem. So because I believe that, you know, anyone who gives to a cause, we know today it's very socially charged. It the extraordinary generosity, even with the Turkey-Syria earthquake that we've seen in the UK, is amazing considering people are feeling vulnerable and, you know, cost of living is going up, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But for me, that's the goodness that I totally believe in. But also at the same time, I know that the uh, how much can people who don't live this every day, unlike me, how much can they hold emotionally? That's tough. So I understand, I understand when there's reticence to give, but I also know that media drives the agenda. So, you know, it's good when it's good, but it's not good when you have, for me, it was very stark when the Afghanistan, when Taliban took over Afghanistan, when I, I was new in this role at that time and, the generosity of giving was extraordinary. The Haiti crisis happened right after that 
earthquake um, happened literally within two weeks after that, we couldn't get any traction at all. And, you know, and Haiti has suffered deeply for a long time. So it's really hard. We have the Horn of Africa hunger crisis where it's literally people just dying because of lack of food again. And, you know, no fault of theirs, climate chaos, etc. Struggling to get attention for that. It's harder to get attention for protracted crises like those, but easier when it's war and something very dramatic and quite close to home. Yeah. I mean, those are stark words, Fina, like it's harder to get attention for a protracted conflict, but easier when it's war. I mean, mm -hmm. what language to hear that that like, do you find yourself wanting to appeal to the everyday person who's going to give uh, what they can afford? Or like, do you find yourself wishing that uh, governments and, and like uh, powers with great resources could be the ones who are doing the response? How, how do you hold together both of those priorities? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I want everyone to care about everyone, knowing that we are inter interdependent. We may not feel it, but yeah. I really think we are. But with governments, I find it really difficult when they give to war huh. and when they give to themselves or when they do things out of fear for, you know, losing what they have. That's really hard to see, really, really hard to see colonization mm. and the damage of that, because so many, so many things have their roots in that way because of the dominion of some, we've left uh, so many powerless yeah. for a long time too, for a long time. Vina, as we come to a close in this conversation, I'm curious about what the focuses of your next few months are. Like, what's your day-to-day -day work now in terms of what you're building and what coalitions you're creating? Um, I have a really exciting year ahead, Porrig. I, I'm here in the Middle East, um, really looking at doing something, like I was saying, long-term to see peace here. You could laugh and say, what? <laughs> How are you going to be able to do that? But the, some of the people who inspire me here really want that. Mm. So I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here and be in this region and see if I can help them do what they want to do. Yeah. So that's what that's I'm so excited about that. And, you know, excited, even in the midst of the terrible, terrible earthquake, we've seen people come together, we've, we, we are seeing things happen that we didn't see when the conflict in Syria started, you know, so it gives me hope. So that's here. But obviously, my, you know, I'm, I am responsible for the work um, that we do in in the 50 countries around the world. So, you know, I'll be keeping an eye and really watching the space about how things are changing. And there's some extraordinary stories all around. Really, we're seeing some phenomenal research that is saying that, you know, investing in faith communities, when you invest a pound, you're seeing return on investment. This is a scientific study, actually, that TFN's done. Um, your, your return on that investment is 28 pounds. Wow. That is something else. That's an extraordinary return. 
Yeah. I mean, in a world where there's increasing attention given to polarization and populism and those dynamics of communities being driven apart politically, um, it sounds like you're seeing a different side of things that's potential on the ground. You're not denying the power of polarization. Of course you're not. But I'm, no. I'm interested in what it is you're seeing on the ground. What do you think nurtures that? I think because that is reality. You know, when you move away from the drama and, the, you know, the powerful spaces, when you, when you come down, when you're walking the streets of some of the places that I am so privileged to walk and you see, you see even in the midst of fighting that they are collecting all the plastic and they're recycling the plastic in a very crude way and they're making stuff out of it. Streets are clean, drains are cleaned. And this is all young people. Oh my goodness, that's exciting. Yeah. And you you see that, but but those stories don't dominate, don't dominate our world. Yeah. But actually, those are the stories that are gonna hold our future. Mm. We need to start just looking, looking, look down, <laughs> look small. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, and I think you're already answering the question, what keeps you going? You've been doing this work for a long time. What, what keeps that fire burning in you? That interest? Love it. <laughs> Love it. Uh, I mean, simply because of the people I work with. I think seeing that excitement when the water comes through that they haven't had, you know, through a, in a tap for a long time, those kinds of things. But, you know, supporting when you, I think, I wonder because I, I have not had been in that place where I've had nothing. But when you've had nothing, I wonder though, where even the gift of being able to sing, not, I don't mean sing well, but just sing with your friends when you're walking like, you know, four hours to collect a bucket of water. There must be something extraordinary about that, isn't it? They can sing. They sing faster, quicker, sooner than even my team of people I work with in the office. Yeah. There's something astonishing about that. And how do you make that the link between that and then the huge priorities in terms of governmental change and economic crises and some people making choices that are keeping other people far away from water? You know, I know I've heard you speak before about, you know, you, you don't want people to be distracted by by the joy and culture of a community, that culture mm. and community is still suffering from lack mm. of access to water. And how do you hold yeah. all that together? There's a tension in that, I know. Um, there is a tension, but also when you realize, you know, you're not that powerful. And when you realize, uh, oh, I'm able to do this much today. Yeah. I'm, I don't even, I don't even think long term in terms of myself or what I can do, but step by step, that faithfulness that I have to hold myself to, then, then I experience enough here uh, on the ground that I that drives me to be able to speak up there. So, you know, uh, or speak with it, take someone with me and bring them into those spaces. I think I, I genuinely think sometimes you know the things may not change at the top, in and we're seeing that in so many places. But when things change on the ground, and that means everything. Our people carry on. Vino Sullivan, International Director of Tear Fund UK. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Pori. <laughs>
you've taken me on a tour just <laughs> sitting here <laughs> thanks so much the Corimela podcast is created in partnership between Corimela and Fanfan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Padrigo Tuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Corimela's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. Are there works of art that you've turned to again and again over your life? Yeah, I love I love the art, the kind of art that's really simple. Uh, in in my country, we have something called Worli art, which is very tribal, and it's done painted on huts and doors, and it depicts everyday life, but from the perspective of the one who's drawing it and painting it using you know natural materials it's so much fun i love that mm. constantly doodling mm. pretending i'm one of those <laughs> another question for you vina is could you tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you <laughs> yes my i i am so mixed up i'm as indian as they come yeah but you know when i I got on this flight, traveling from Njamina, the capital of Chad, going back home to Ireland. And you will not believe it, the plane was full of Irish peacekeeping troops. <laughs> and I was the only non-Irish person, but with an O'Sullivan in my name. So they sang to me and they regaled me with stories and they adopted me as, as one of their own. It's, you know, when you have a surname that is tells a story uh, and you have a passport that's Irish, but you look like the way I look, your identities just keep, you know, changing all the time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I I feel as Indian as they come, but when the Ethiopians say that they I, I'm one of them, I feel Ethiopian. Mm.